This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue, a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And this is our bonus episode that we're doing, that we do sometimes, <laughs> that we do live for some of our supporters, and the rest of y'all get to hear it later. I'm not helping you out. No, why this. aren't you helping me? <laughs> you say you, you want to talk about sports, Craig, because it's, it's February 17th. Which, which means, means time for baseball. Which means time for baseball. So it's apparently spring training, even though it's winter, and also there's the Winter Olympics. How you can have the Winter Olympics and spring training happening at the same time is a mystery to me. Well, so, yeah, but guy. sometimes the Winter Olympics are like in the summer. Because of no, hemispheres? No. Well, but not everyone has the same winter, Andrew. <laughs> Think about that. Didn't Don't you know your science? No. You got to help me out more. You are like bailing on me left and right. You're going to let everybody down. Recorded. I wanted you to talk about sports, and now you're talking about seasons. What are you doing? I don't know. God. All right. So every week, one of us reads a book and talks about it to the other one and to you. And we all learn a lot and laugh a lot and talk about the Winter Olympics badly. Craig, what did you read for this month's bonus episode? I read The Crane's Dance, which is by Meg Howery. And it was recommended to us by Katie. Thank you, Katie. How do them cranes dance, though? Like ballerinas. Mm -hmm. Because it's a book about ballet. It's like a Fantasia type kind of thing no, like animals dancing it's ballet? like real ballet mm-hmm. um no there's no like giraffes and tutus or anything like that that's really disappointing actually. yeah it was a kind of a bummer while i was reading it but i don't want to mm-hmm. put that on the on our listeners i don't okay. want to bum them out that this is not a fantasia show <laughs> Do you think was there a novelization of Fantasia that we can read? You could and look at the up dinosaurs all time. Right now, instead of doing the podcast. <laughs> um what can you tell me about Meg Howery? I know that she has written what, at least three books. Three under books her own name. Under the her Wanderers, own name. Yep. The Crane's Dance and Blind Sight, and then as a Magnus Flight, which is kind of an amazing D D character name. Yeah. She's written uh, two books, City of Dark Magic and City of Lost Dreams. Yeah. Um, and then before becoming a writer, she was a, a professional dancer and also an actor, right? Yes. So she was raised in the Midwest and moved to the New York to the New York City, Big Apple, the New NYC, York City. Uh, to study at the Joffrey School for Ballet, which is affiliated with this uh, famous choreographer, Robert Joffrey, who I think also has a company in Chicago. Uh, She then went on to perform in the City Ballet of Los Angeles and some other places. Uh, She acted at Lincoln Center. She was in the national tour of this uh, production called Contact, which is worth noting it's a musical dance play that is not an adaptation of the Jodie Foster alien 
movie that you may be familiar <laughs> okay. with. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, after she kind of wrapped up, she was transitioning out of being just a dancer. And as you alluded to, she kind of shifted into acting as well. She had a bit more of an interest in that. And then as her, you know, we'll talk about this in, in relation to the book, but dancing is one of those professions that uh, has in some way, shape or form an expiration date. That is like, there is a, a point in time where probably uh, you are getting older than the people who are better than you. And you Well, just like, like pretty much yeah. any, like to, to bring this back to sports, which is why, of course, sure. we opened our podcast with a discussion of sports. Uh, <laughs> there are not a lot of people playing professional sports who are like older than 40. Like it's pretty... It's pretty rare for you to be able to do that much past your 30s, I don't think. Yeah, and certainly in... Especially depending on the sport. Depending on the sport, you know, I think we've seen some recent, like, Olympic, keeping it topical, uh, like, narratives about uh, folks who are older than their competitors, you know, performing really well in certain sports. But yeah, if it, a lot of the best gymnasts in the world are, like, old teenagers, and... The best baseball players are like mid twenties, so there's certainly a thing where your body just stops being as good at it anymore. And what do you transition to? Uh, so she moved into writing. She moved to L.A. Um, I think it was an interview. She said she needed to just kind of like change cities, get a get a change of uh, landscape, and. Uh, she wrote a draft of this book first. It is about a a uh, young woman who then goes to study ballet in New York and, and her life. So it's not like a direct autobiography, but it is certainly drawing on what she knows. And right. I think people were receptive to it, but nobody picked it up. So she like wrote... You do understand that's the opposite of what receptive is, no, right? <laughs> Well, to hear her tell it, people <laughs> like read it and were like, this is pretty good, but like no one wanted to bite on it. Uh -huh. And then she wrote this other book called Blind Sight, which did get published and was well-received. And then the movie Black Swan came out. Oh, and, and that kicked off like a ballet craze. I, <laughs> I don't know that it did, but mm -hmm. uh, her editor did like write her and be like, hey, you got to go back to that ballet book that you have. Um, Ballet's hot right now. Hot, hot, hot right now. I just imagine like a... J.K. Simmons playing that newspaper Spider-Man guy, mm -hmm. like he like smoking a cigar and asking, "We need more ballet books. Give and me more ballet Spider -Man. books. Yeah, give me more pictures of ballet dancers and put them in books. <laughs> um, we need more ballet body horror, a la David Cronenberg." Mm -hmm. um, so she, you know, recognizes that these are not very similar stories, aside from the fact that they are about ballet. About ballet, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and I guess sort of tangentially about mental illness. This, well, yeah, they both are sure. Um, and this book gets into the some fuzzy lines in, in those worlds of like the age old question of uh, art, the, the relationship between like artists and mental illness, and okay. uh, and stuff like that. Um, and she's seems like she's doing well for herself as a writer. She just had another book, The Wanderers, come out, which I think is about going to Mars, um, which is something we can all, all aspire to. <laughs> I don't think it's about dancing on Mars. I think it's just about Mars. I do kind of wonder if we ever colonize the moon, though, if 
people who got too old for or- Earth sports could go to the moon and play like low grav moon sports. Every four years, there could be a moon Olympics. A moon Olympics. Mostly jumping events. It's mostly jumping and just being like, wow, this is so rad how high I can jump on the moon. I'm pretty pumped about this idea. I think maybe like maybe the first year they would just do regular Olympic sports and then they would realize that it didn't work. When you try to do like a shot put and it went around like all the way around the moon and came back around and hit you in the back of the head. Bugs Bunny would be very good at the Mar- <laughs> at the Moon Olympics. I was th- I almost said Mars Olympics, but that's we're not there yet. I uh, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Twenty one thirty two though. <sighs> Buckle up. Just wait for it. Uh, so Andrew, what do you know about ballet? You're a you're a hip, uh, cultured guy. A Renaissance man. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. What do you know mm-hmm. about ballet? I know it's about dancing. Okay. That's it. <laughs> um, like I don't firsthand like nothing. Okay. Um, <laughs> mostly I know what I know from representations on TV. So there's of course that classic Simpsons episode where Bart is a ballet dancer. Oh yeah. There's um, that Amy Sherman Palladino show. So the the showrunner or creator of Gilmore Girls and now uh, Mrs. Maisel did for one year on what was then called ABC Family. A one season show called Bunheads that was about like teen ballerinas. Okay. <laughs> and for reasons that should be pretty obvious, it didn't last very long. But was it good though? It was like mid tier Gilmore Girls. Like it was fun. I wouldn't say like run out and watch it right now, but I, I enjoy it. Sutton Foster's in it. That's fun. oh, she's good. She's very good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So you don't know. So have you ever been to a ballet, like an actual? Oh, no. You've n- <laughs> oh no no no. Of course, Why do you of course. Say not. it like that. Just because. Look at me. Of course, I haven't. Okay, I've been I'm not, to I'm at not least that two. I think. Well, good for you. <laughs> well, I'm just. I'm just trying to meet you halfway. I've been. I've been to a Nutcracker, and I think I went to Carmina Burana. No, I'm not. No, you- no, I'm not that. No. Okay. What have you? I haven't even been to a a thing with like big Disney characters in ice skates. Like I have been never been to Disney on ice. I would love to. Let's go sometime. All right. You got it. Okay. Is there? A... You, okay. So what do you know about ballet? Like what do you? Well, I out? not much. I have some terms for us to make sure we know. Well, geez, you think you're better than me? You don't know anything about ballet either. <laughs> This whole podcast has been a competition. Do you know what a plie is, Andrew? Um, is that the thing where you're like hold on to the bar and you bend your knees? Yes, you don't have to be holding on to the bar, but let's presume that for most of these you are because that's the image that you have in your head because that's mm-hmm. what you do when you're in class, in bar right. class. Uh, do you know what a releve is? Sounds like spinning around. No, it's when you when you rise, you go up on your feet. Okay, cool. Do you know what saute is? You uh, take a pan, uh-huh. you put down some olive oil, you heat up that oil. Yeah. Now, one trick is that you sprinkle a little bit of salt in there. That keeps the grease from splattering. That's oh, and I then, do. yeah, and then you throw some like veggies or whatever in there, and you just kind of saute them up. It's also when you jump and you land on your feet. Sure, like you jump from tr- the quote I have here is two feet to two feet. Okay. Uh, do you know what a tendu is? 
Um, uh, you cut them open for warmth when you're on the ice planet Hoth, and I... you need to mm-hmm. you need to keep warm overnight. How do they smell? Bad on the outside and worse on the inside. Apparently, apparently, mm-hmm. um, that it is actually way you like stretch your leg. You like it's stretching. And you okay. like put your foot, your toe. Boy, out. I'm pretty wrong. Um, do you know what pour de bras is? A kind of red wine. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> it's moving your arms from one position to another. Susu? Susu? Your feet are like, like single file to hide their numbers. <laughs> God. Right. You're like up on the balls of your feet and like one foot is behind the other. <laughs> I watched a YouTube video. I think this is correct. Uh-huh. And then uh, there's soutenu, which is when you move from one leg to the other. And this, Andrew, this is a thing that you can do spinning. Okay. So a shout out to Graham in our- in Graham our, says, yeah, he our, knows all of these from Peppa Pig. Which yeah. Is, yeah. I feel like there's some learning that we could be doing if if- we had kids if we had three-year-olds yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think so too uh so I, I bring this up not because the book is like gonna quiz you on ballet it's actually the plot of it is is pretty it doesn't require you to know too much though there's some inside baseball stuff that will like space out parts of the plot where it's like yeah there are um there were there are not a lot of reviews of this book and the ones that are out there are not like super in-depth like what sometimes when we're researching we'll find a review to just like see what critics thought or if they i don't know had thoughts that we can kind of play off of and one person's critique is that there is a little like because she is a dancer yeah sure the author um we maybe get a little bit too much behind the curtain drama or information. I don't want to say it's like Moby Dick and Wailing. But no, and it's not. That's like what comes that. to mind. So this will this will be a good transition into talking about the book proper. So the main character, Kate, Kate Crane, uh, she is a professional ballet dancer, and she is talking to you, the reader, like directly. She kind of refers to the reader as an invisible audience member that she's occasionally performing for. She references that conceit a couple times just as like how she moves through life as as someone who is kind of completely bound up in performance, like her entire identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and she presumes in most cases that you don't know anything about ballet. So <laughs> there mm-hmm. are stretches of the book where to set a scene or to set the stakes, she is explaining some things to you. And and weaving into those explanations either like a plot element or a character relationship it's not like broken like you said it's not broken out like a moby dick where like we're just going to talk about whale guts for a couple chapters <laughs> there's not like a an that essay would seem out of place in this no. ballet book <laughs> there's not an essay on tutus or anything like that or an essay on leotards or like why they say mared to wish people good luck, even though I would appre- I would like to know why that's the thing that people say. Married like the French cuss? Yeah, that's what people huh. say. Um, I've, I don't know. I've, I encountered that at a college dance show, but I don't know why, where that comes from. Um, Are you sure they were not just pranking you <laughs> and that this is a thing that... Well, then they must have reached out to Meg Howery to continue this long con, is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Um, So Kate is a professional ballet dancer, as I said. Her sister Gwen 
uh, is also a very talented professional ballet dancer. And at the beginning of the book, um, you are told that something happened with Gwen, that she is now no longer with the company. She is back with their parents in Michigan uh, to recuperate. And Kate has mixed feelings of like anger and guilt about it. She's living in Gwen's apartment, um, having broken up with her boyfriend and moved back in. No one at the company really knows about it other than, oh, Gwen's sick or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her knee is, well, actually, she has a knee injury, which did not happen until after she went back. So the course of the book um, is Kate filling in their relationship while there's like an ongoing plot of like the the rest of the ballet season from when the book begins. So it begins with her in Swan Lake, uh, basically giving herself whiplash from dancing, uh-huh. which I presume is a thing that is can definitely happen to people mm-hmm. um, from from how you have to like point and and turn. Um, and so the the opening of the book is actually an interesting. Uh, welcome to the character of Kate, who's this kind of sarcastic, uh, poking fun at herself and the and the con- just the whole like concept and community of ballet, while equally needing it and and finding it very important. So she right. gives this like whole opening chapter that is kind of a riff on what is going on in Swan Lake, like working from the presumption that you, the reader, know nothing about it. She's like, let me just give you a rundown of, of what it is. And it's very silly. Um, you know, she describes, she's a soloist. She's not a principal. So she's not one of the lead characters, but she gets like her right. own dance. And mm-hmm. at one point she is the, the Polish princess in Swan Lake, which she describes as like her dances. As long as I keep a general air of, Quote, I'm so hugely psyched to be Polish and avoid falling, I'm in the clear. Like, that's how she knows she's succeeded. That's how uh, I try to live my life. <laughs> I'm just really psyched to be I'm me. so psyched to be Polish. <laughs> uh, and she also gets in a good dig at ballet crowd scenes, which is not something I'd thought about, but is really funny. Like, so any theatrical crowd scene is kind of goofy because there's people who don't, who aren't allowed to talk, who all have to walk around and pretend like they're talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And this is in particular in like pastoral, like village stuff. You just have a bunch like the opening, imagine the opening of beauty and the beast, but you have to like watch all those people just wander around and greet each other in the background while the scene is going on. Sure. And in ballet, since there's no like props or set pieces or anything, because you need all the room for dancing, they can't, hold anything so she says everyone just wanders around greeting each other with head nods uh if you're a girl and shoulder thumping if you're a guy and then one person will indicate center stage like hey did you see there are people dancing isn't that (laughs) and the other person will make a gesture like yes dancing it is happening there this is like the the rhubarb rhubarb yeah watermelon watermelon. who's saying it too loud and like yeah so she this sets up how she feels about ballet through the rest of the book, which is she is equally comfortable kind of mocking the conventions of it and, you know, being self-deprecating about what it takes to do it well, while not in this opening chapter, but as you go on through the book, kind of like realizing how important it is to her. And um, the thing is, she's the older sister of her and Gwen. I think she's a year or two older. 
but Gwen uh, turns out to be the better dancer. Like Kate is a, she is talented and she is driven. She's a bit better of an, of an actress. She's can, she can emote a little bit better, but Gwen is the, the, she dances in such a way that like literally takes your breath away. It's just, Oh God, the dance. Do we get, I mean, do we ever get any idea why, or is it just, just a thing? Is it just a fact that that is privately acknowledged, but not really publicly talked about? Um, why she's so good. Yeah. Like why she's better. Um, I don't know. No, not necessarily. The, the, the one thing that Kate says a little bit later and she, this is wrapped up in the guilt she has about maybe pushing Gwen too hard. So we're uh, after I answer your question, we're going to transition into like what happened to Gwen. But she talks about how after Kate made it and, you know, she went to this private school, the graduates of which some of whom go in to get selected to join this professional company. So it's very prestigious and she makes it and she's like, Oh man, this is everything I've ever dreamed of. And now she like, doesn't now she doesn't know what to do with herself because the whole point was to get here. And so when Gwen so shows up, she basically devotes herself to making sure Gwen is as good as she can possibly be because she's sure. more comfortable uh, like helping someone else than she is kind of just radically uh, devoting herself to her own work. Um, I think because of the, there's like a fear of failure thing there. Like it is way, it, it can be easier to cheerlead someone else and to help them improve what they're working on than it is to like honestly critique yourself. Um, well, I guess sometimes it, and it's, it, it's more interesting and fun to be like moving up the ladder fast than it is to just be like, stuck in a place for a while and trying to do a good job there. So I could see why her own professional, like not stagnation, but you know what I mean? Like why why that would, why that would prompt her to go and and try and find someone else to help out or something. And she's not, not jealous of Gwen. Like she, she goes to, she goes to the school and she comes home on her break. This is like, she's high school age. It's like her last year of high school, essentially. She comes home on Christmas break and like sees her sister dance in the local Nutcracker, even though they've started hiring professionals, but they still hired her. And she has this moment of realization where she's like, nope, Gwen's the best. She's the best dancer. I'm screwed. Oh, crap. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I will be good and I could be a lead in Philly or Boston, but Gwen will be the lead in New York when she gets there. Um, so the thing that you there's never a moment where it's like, oh, here's what caused Gwen's breakdown. But it is clear that Gwen had uh, some sort of mental episode that is... is like the, the pressure get to her, or is it explicitly not that, or is it, it just is, not even... It is both that and actual, like, di- you know, diagnoses of potential conditions. So what gets okay. described... Uh, later is that it could be anything from you know she manifests OCD um, it could be psychotic depression it could be a dissociative personality disorder there's no like this is definitely what caused it Um, and when Kate's at her worst in the book she is at least acknowledging to the reader how she has felt like Gwen leans into it. Like it's that fine line of like, how much control do you have over this? 
and couldn't you just exert a little bit more and is there is, is there an implication that she that that she thinks Gwen is doing it a little bit for the attention or no or yeah or or a little bit so so I'll just give a couple of the like incidents that happen sure um cuz m- my read on it in the book was that for the most part it uh it at least felt true to the story that it was presenting, even though sometimes it felt a little over the top. So when Gwen moves to New York to to be in this school with Kate, and then uh, Gwen does get selected to also be, join this company. They are living with a roommate, uh, her friend Mara. Three of them are living together. So Mara's the only other person in the company who has any idea that this has gone on. So the first thing is, like, Gwen has been cutting out paper dolls and like keeping them in her pillow like instead of like in her pillowcase instead of an actual pillow and like thousands of them and it's a thing she does instead of sleeping she doesn't have a good explanation for why she you know talks to herself in the bathroom for hours on end at night to kind of unwind a lot of it is like unwinding or described as like kind of just general coping with stress mechanisms um it bubbles over when she has like a panic attack during them like dealing with their first mouse in- infestation in New York, mm-hmm. which is like it's a scene that starts comic and then bubbles over into not pretty pretty profoundly, um, and then it gets into stuff that you see more regularly in in representations of uh, conditions like this, where it's like cleaning even though no cleaning is necessary. Um, generally, you know, discomfort, the, the fine line between tidiness and no, actually, I should be able to like leave a thing on the coffee table if I'm using it, that, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and then some, and then it gets a little bit more esoteric where it's like she's collecting keys, even though she's basically just finding them on the street. She is, uh, writing down numbers on little pieces of paper because she says they comfort her. Um, and it, she d- she ends up going to therapy, or she's supposed to, but she convinces Kate to go for her, which is like that's a situation that's not that doesn't how therapy works. Really, Come really on. makes sense. You can't do therapy by proxy. Like. No, it's basically they. It's a doctor they don't know. They don't tell their parents, which is really shifty. And so Kate just like pretends to be her sister and gets the prescriptions for her sister rather than actually send her sister to these sessions hmm. yeah that that probably could have developed into a larger story and the, and the ramifications of that should have probably been dealt with more directly um what it does build to though is like when despite uh these issues is very successful as a performer until it's until she's not and uh it does result in like she doesn't directly she comes very close to taking an attempt on her own life um and it is th- this is like spaced out throughout the book like it's kind of jumping back and forth but uh, sure. it's easier to understand as as a discrete narrative um and that's the like line in the sand where Kate calls their parents and is like you need to take Gwen needs to come home and be with you and figure this out and Kate feels like Gwen is upset about it um, and uh, Gwen won't talk to her but she will call and like talk to all their friends and so again like Kate is dealing with anger at her sister for 
the things she's put her through to like keep this secret and take care of her. And she's also feeling very guilty because she's not sure what she has exacerbated and what she has uh, like let slide or, or sure. what she could have done more. Um, the mm-hmm. good question from Robin uh, in the chat is she's asking whether or not this is told in uh, alternating points of view. It is not. It is all told uh, by Kate to the audience or to the reader, um, though it does kind of jump around in time. Um, she She's always in the present tense, but she'll tell you a story and be like, hey, this is when this happened or this reminds me of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you were looking up a little bit about like presentations of OCD. Um, Andrew, do you have yeah. anything? Uh, based kind of what I said is just like it... The story builds in a way that feels naturally, but one or two of the incidents feel in context over the top, though I don't want to like say that like that they can't happen because they're, you know, all sorts of things can happen to people. So, yeah, I mean, most of the stuff I found and it sounds like this book moves a little bit beyond at least like the traditional OCD representation in media, which is almost always like hand washing and counting yeah and can either be played for laughs sometimes mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. D- as tragedy sometimes like yeah. depending i think it depends on the show like the i read an article in psychology today about the show monk which i think was mostly humorous about the the ocd like mostly used it for comedy yeah but then i feel like in dramas or something where where people discover their OCD or that somebody's OCD it's played up for for I don't know the the not the tragedy of it but just like the drama of it and the surprise of it or something um but yeah so there's this a piece I found by Andrea Judy writing in the mighty about her um OCD diagnosis and um you know, her her therapist asked her if she thought she might had or have it, or if she'd ever like had a, if anybody had ever like considered that. And she said, "No, like I don't wash my hands. I don't do that that stuff." And so her OCD manifests more as um, like anxiety. Like she says, "For me, OCD is being unable to walk up or down a flight of, a flight of stairs without having to count the number of steps. It's pressing my car alarm button three times to make sure it locked. It means some mornings halfway to work, I turn around and go home to check the lock on the door. It means waking up at 2 a.m. to make sure I turn the oven off. It's when I clean house, spending three hours readjusting my bookshelves by color or topic and not actually doing any of the big projects. It means dishes piling up in the sink makes me feel like my life is falling apart and the whole house is filled with bugs. It means I procrastinate because the fear of not doing something right makes it feel impossible to start. Um, it means I've written the beginning of this article four times already, and I still feel that I have it all wrong. Um, and it plays in my head on repeat with full images, no matter how many times I assure myself I would never do something like that. So like it's, it's, it is, it is just that the pop popular portrayal of OCD is pretty simplistic and yeah. doesn't quite capture the reality of, of the situation. I don't think. Yeah. And what this book mostly does is it presents it from the perspective of the relative or caregiver who is equal parts trying to be helpful and trying and like admitting to the reader when this is like too much for her 
Um, sure. There's a yeah. There's I mean, and I, I don't know if the if the book does this, but the one other thing I found about representation was a um, Psychology Today article about the show Monk that was talking about a specific episode that got uh, nominated for an Emmy. It's called Mister Monk Takes His Medicine, and it's about um, him basically getting like going and getting medication, and it's one of those plots where somebody with a with a disorder or something goes and gets medicated and it makes them like not themselves or something like he's just not the oh. he's not the super useful detective genius that he is when he's not on his meds and so yeah. wow are you sure you want to take medication are you sure it's not just gonna totally change who you are and ruin your whole thing which like i internalized pretty deeply before i went and started taking anything and i know other people i've i've talked to have too so i don't know if that comes up in the book but like those are those are all the the research points i found that we might that that you might talk about based on how the book handles them uh, i don't know yeah so what's interesting is that gwen mostly factors into the narrative of the book as a past tense character because She's not in New York with Kate. They are only ever in the present tense in the same room or anything like that uh, at the end of the book uh, after the season is over and, and Kate goes back to visit her and they have a, you know, they figure their stuff out as best as they can. Um, and one of the tensions, though, in the book is that, like, Kate thinks she's fine, like nothing's, mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote wrong with her. But at the beginning of the book, she you know, rips her neck bad and she fights through it for the entire season to the point where she basically develops an addiction to Vicodin um, and has to deal with that over the course of the book and lying sure. to people about using it and realizing when she has taken too much of it to, to go on stage, uh, going on stage despite that. And this, uh, the way in which you can, uh, misdiagnose yourself when you're upset about uh the, the a situation that that's affecting someone else close to you um so i i don't know again i don't i don't know that the book misrepresents you know obsessive compulsive disorder or some of the things that are affecting gwen i actually kind of appreciate that it doesn't try to explain away where it came from like it kind of just treats it as as a thing she's gonna have to deal with and as a thing that she dealt with. Right. Um, the The issue of medication is is something that like Kate lies to herself about her own reliance on it, and she is frustrated at her parents' response to Gwen, which is to like, oh well, it's a thing that you know, it's just a thing. She's gonna take some pills and then she'll be fine. She gets very angry at her mom at one point in the book because her mom seems to be kind of willing to swipe to like sweep it under the rug and say like this is a a curable thing rather than a treatable thing, um, and that can be its own form of denial. Um, sure. And and so Kate gets very frustrated about that. But so the the larger thing that this question of mental health and um, you know, addiction and and things like that gets to is the culture of excellence in this book and what it is to be fully devoted to a thing, as we were talking about at the top of the podcast, um, similar to sports, because her, I think Kate's mom, Kate and Gwen's mom is a former tennis player. 
their dad is this former like violin virtuoso who then became a surgeon and their brother is a like world renowned tennis player so they all have this like thing that they devoted themselves to from an age when it didn't when it wasn't even really a choice like mm-hmm. when she talks about getting into ballet like her and Gwen are both like 4 and 5 years old when their brother Keith gets into tennis it's like he's four and he likes hitting stuff so his mom put a racket in his hand and then like channeled it like imagine bam bam from the flintstones like becoming an all-star baseball player basically Uh um and at one point there's a there's a scene where like keith is talking to kate and he's like he had tried to quit tennis in like middle school or high school or something and she talks about him always doing this in a very theatrical way and he's like but it's different for you and and Gwen because you both love ballet and she asks this really good question and she doesn't really answer it she kind of just poses it to the reader of like does it really matter like if it's just the thing that you do because you're good at it like a does it matter if you love it b how do you even tell if you love it if it's really all you know how to do and that's when the book is its most successful, I think it's like tapping into a universality of what it is to devote yourself to something. Yeah, and sure. uh, I was just, uh, I, that moment with Keith struck me because like I was not, I was a musician in high school and then later college. And, you know, I started playing the trumpet as a, as a little kid. I was never amazing, but I stuck with it. But I distinctly remember the moment where I almost quit and just like, I was like, no, I don't want to do that anymore. And I don't remember why I didn't want to do it. And I only sort of remember why I kept doing it anyway, which uh-huh. I think was friends. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. did, cause you did, did you do band in high school? I did, school? I did, yeah, I did jazz band and marching band and pep band. And yeah. I did musicals and show choir for a couple of years. And that I did successfully quit. But do you remember why you started doing any of that stuff? Um, well, I mean, for, when I got my trombone in like fifth grade, when when people were allowed to start doing band, one, it was just something that a lot of the the, the kids were doing. I I don't remember if you got out of class for it or not, but I feel like that may have been in elementary school. You, I got out of class a couple. Yeah, times I think for that band. may have been part of the equation, and then. <laughs> Like in in junior high, I think it was some kind of credit, and then in high schools when it got serious because that's when it became marching band, and you actually had to go and like do it in front of people regularly. Yeah. But um, it was like it started out being because my mom had done it, and so she wanted me to do it. Well, and you're and, the oldest, right? Yeah, I'm I'm the oldest. So yeah. like when I got the instrument in the first place, that's what it was, and then from there it was friends. Yep. And sometimes inertia but mostly friends (laughs) yeah i think it was mostly friends for me i also had two older sisters who both did music so it was like okay you do that and then that's just like a thing that you're supposed to do i guess yeah as a kid when Mm -hmm. you have the opportunity um and then theater yeah that was just people i knew and that ended up being what i did with my life so that's weird but (laughs) um yeah it's just kind of I think the book does do a, a pretty good job of 
asking a lot of questions as to as to why you get into something like this. And at one point, Kate is talking about like, so she's already a professional, right? So, and she's sort of figured out that she's not really going to get promoted past soloist. Like, uh-huh. I think the artistic director has even told her this. Um, so she's kind of wondering why you keep doing it. And she says, at some point, you did something perfectly, and now your whole life is a search to recreate that. Right. And I think she's also talking She's talking to someone whose daughter is like a, a gymnast, and I think that's where that comes up. And that certainly maps to most of the stories you see about, uh, you know, Olympians or, or anything like that, where it's like, okay, I was so I was so good at it that I was a number one and I got a hundred on it. And Mm -hmm. now I guess that, but it took my entire life to get those skills (laughs) and now I have to keep doing it or else, or else what else? Mm -hmm. And that's a scary question. Um, what else is going on? So like Kate's journey in this book is to actually figuring out a, how similar she is to Gwen and, and, Gwen's situation but also to like what is going to become of her in the years to come because she is basically at her peak she is good enough to to fill in and lead roles like over the course of the story she does like play the lead in a new production of Midsummer, which Gwen was supposed to do she is the lead in some you know world premiere ballets which she remarks as like that's a thing we do for accessibility <laughs> like sure. the the hardcore ballet people just want to show up and see their Tchaikovsky and leave. But, <laughs> um, and the, it ends with her kind of like, there's like a C plot in the book where whenever she's interacting with another dancer, um, there's usually a beat where she is like helping them be better at dancing. Sure. Um, and so it feels like her way out. And this is when she's at her like lowest moment. Um, her way out is this offer to go with the artistic director to Europe as like his like artistic intern, basically his assistant director. And maybe that is going to be her future is not to like leave dancing altogether and go be a writer like Meg Howery, but maybe to uh, learn. And I think she even says she, she learns that she loves dance even more when she's watching it than when she's doing it. And like, that's a cresting point for her. Um, And that's, that's kind of where she gets to by the end of the book. Um, Okay. So yeah, the, the other like main thread is this relationship that she has with the woman that took her in. So she moves to New York to be to go to the school and i think it's in 1995 the school doesn't have like a dorm at the time she's a teenager and so they need people to like sponsor kit like almost like when you and i andrew would go on choir tour and like you stay in our stranger's house right yeah um except (laughs) some of those are weird right that got harrowing sometimes (laughs) sometimes it's the best sometimes it's the best and sometimes you're worried you're not gonna make it (laughs) that's true <laughs> um but she ends up in this like woman's house who's she it's older woman her husband has passed away they didn't have any kids and she this woman is kind of like a ghost like she never really he's really sees her while she lives there but after she joins the company 
um, she stays in touch and the woman becomes a donor to the to the ballet and they have like monthly meetings and there's just kind of like a sweet friendship between them where this was a like way for this woman Wendy to like not really have a kid but uh, contribute to the next generation of people mm-hmm. and then uh, Wendy does like as Kate is getting wrapped up and having a hard time and they kind of fall out in touch Wendy uh, has to deal with like a cancer diagnosis and in some books it might be a larger thread and I don't know if there's another analog that you can think of in the back of your head but where you get like you get a subplot that easily feels like it could be the point of a different book sure where it's like here's a you know 20 something ballerina that is learning about love and life and loss through her friendship with this older academic woman. (laughs) Um, And it's a touching relationship because, you know, most of the conversations they have are really positive and they learn about each other, but it doesn't directly impact anything that Kate does in the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, It just kind of fleshes out that like she knows other people and, and she, this is a real person that she would have known in, in this situation where, where people are sponsoring them to go to classes and stuff like that. Um, that's, I don't know. I was just taken with that because that was one of the elements of the book that I just was like, Oh, this is not, it is not necessary. It is not necessary. I don't mm-hmm. think, but it does enrich the book. If sure. that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Um, and then the only other, like main thematic thing for for Kate and and dancing etc is just that transition from uh being the best from wherever you are and then you move to the big apple you move to the big city bright lights <laughs> sure of course and you're a, you were a big fish in your pond and now you're in a pond but all the fish are big <laughs> and they're all as big as you and what are you going to do um and how do you I was struck by like how all of the characters navigate this incredibly competitive atmosphere while still like exi- tolerating each other. Sure. <laughs> like, Cause I'm, you know, there's like a professional sports analog there too, where it's like you're on all these different teams and you're all in the same league. You see each other regularly and you're always competing to be the best. But like, this is maybe like 20 or 30 people mm-hmm. who are all in the same shows together all the time. And they're taking classes together every day and they're rehearsing for other shows, but they know who's the soloist and they know who's the lead and they know who gets to fill in for who. And it's a very like concrete pecking order Mm-hmm. that they all have to both acknowledge and not talk about explicitly or else they'd all go mad. Sure. Is that... <sighs> <laughs> I, I know I mentioned that to you in our pre-show planning and you were like, that's just like every job. <laughs> like, it is like every job. Like, yeah. No, I don't have anything to add except for that. That is kind of like every job. <laughs> Sure. Are there? But like, but but so okay. So so to take let let's go back. Let's go back to elementary school, high school days again. Oh sure. Is like when you like when you were a sophomore or something or a ninth grader or something. Like there mm-hmm. was a there was a level of part that you were not going to get regardless of how good you were because oh correct you had not done it for long enough and so maybe it's like that kind of thing. Yeah, 
Except this is your whole yes. It's like it's that, and what what is striking about that, this? except for your career, except for your career, <laughs> and yeah, this there is a there is it is sort of a uh like a book about growing up, or this type of story is about growing up, but it's also like coming to terms with yourself in that hierarchy as its own form of growing up. It's like mm-hmm. it's not it's the version of it that you can't that is way too similar to high school. And mm-hmm. then most of us just get to get out of that. <laughs> and then what if you devote your life to being in that situation? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I can. I remember uh, being in tears about not getting stuff in high school, like theater stuff. Yeah, and like dumb. I mean, like, I I didn't do that, but I I know what you mean. I like know looking, the heightened emotion that you're referring to. Oh, crying. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, no, like not getting something you really wanted and not having the emotional faculties to deal with it. Yes. Yet. Yes. Well, and like, especially because in like a small environment like this, like a school or like a, like a dance company or something, um, because you have to live with those people beyond those decisions, it's very tough. Sure. Um, there's a, there's a moment Early in her career, Kate, when she first gets into the company, her good friend Mara, they both get chosen. They're very excited. And she describes the moment where their careers like diverged, where Mara had to fill in last minute for someone in the company mm-hmm. in a like maybe medium sized part. And she did it and she was solid and like she was labeled as reliable. And so she did not get the career of someone who is like risky and maybe let's put her into this big role and see what happens. Like uh-huh. we need her to round out the cast in a solid way. And Kate gets chosen to be the lead in like a world premiere, kind of like it's not low stakes, but it's not a big name property, but she does get this cool big part. And so she goes on a different trajectory and it's this interesting, like, the book is full of little moments like that where it's like, oh, if that had not happened, well, huh, we could maybe we would both be on the same like plane. But we are both sure. still friends and we both still see each other every day. And how are we going to navigate that? Um, and what is it to succeed where your friends fail and then have to like still see your friend the next day mm-hmm. and like help them through what they're up to? Um yeah, that's the book. It's there's a couple other things that are like, as I said, a little bit more like inside baseball-y about just like living in the arts or the there's like pages of like what it is to go to ballet class every day. Yeah. Because even if you're a professional, that is like the way that you do your warm ups and and deal with people. Like that's an interesting thing. Like you're just someone who lives in New York who takes ballet classes and then like all of a sudden there's a professional Ballet-er there right. next to you. Mm-hmm. Is that the term? Ballet-er? Yeah, ballet-er. Ballet-er. Some, yeah. Sometimes um, ballet-ist. Oh, that's good. That's uh-huh. what I thought. Um, and and also, the there's something about uh, Howery's writing style that I think is informed by her experience as a dancer. She says, I think in the interview you alluded to earlier, Andrew... Mm-hmm. Um, she says some dance is narrative and you're telling a story, but a lot of dance isn't. It's about interpreting the music. So your whole goal is to find ways to express something in form. So dancers use words when they talk to each other, but they use gestures so much more. 
And I read that quote and I was like, oh my God. Yeah, in the book, she says the word gesture like 40 times. And it's in this way where two characters will be in a conversation and then I have a couple of them pulled up like, Neil made a gesture of annoyance or I'm, I That's made a gesture of annoyance. <laughs> and uh, but again, like she doesn't describe what the person does. She just says that they made the gesture because when she's later talking about the emotional vocabulary of ballet, she's like, we have gestures for tenderness. We have gestures for sincerity and rage and passion. Um, so the way that she thinks about how these people move through space is, is through gesture. Like she says, I, I made the gesture of time on an invisible wristwatch. I like that's, while that is that's <laughs> a weird way to say that. Instead of I just like tapped my wrist at him. Yeah, and I think like I think most readers would pick that up, but not to not to say that everybody would, but I think most people would understand what that what that means. Unless you're like specifically trying to draw attention to the gestures of it all. But a lot of the time it just sounds like you're trying not to describe like someone throwing a flipping the bird or something. <laughs> and there most of the time it's not a pantomime thing. A lot of times it's her saying it's like I make the gesture for sympathy or she made the gesture for deference. Um or the gesture for fondness. At one no. point, the gesture I am making for, the, ah, yes. I am making the gesture for finding this all a little bit much. <laughs> it, in the moment reading, it didn't make sense to me until I read the interview with her where I was like, oh, this is like literally how her brain is trained to think about human behavior. Like, because when you're making, you know, you're making dance, like that is what you have. If you're trying to represent character, like an emotion, you are trying to find visual ways to signify that to an audience. Mm -hmm. So like as a writer, I can imagine that is how she perceives the characters in her head. If she's like thinking about what they're doing, she's still thinking, maybe thinking about it through that lens. Um, and it makes sense in a book about ballet. I I don't know. I wonder if her (laughs) other prose has a similar calling card. Um, Mm -hmm in the context of a narrator also that is a balladeer um she is probably that like that makes sense in context but yeah it looking at it as a list of 40 instances of the word gesture like it's a bit much <laughs> yeah right so um i think that's it andrew do you want to be do you want to go learn to do ballet with me i'm 32 years old I okay. think I'm. I think I missed it. I think I missed my chance. To you be think you missed good, the ballet boat? Good ba- balleting man. But what if we just like learned Ballet-ing. enough to have fun with it? Oh, <laughs> maybe we could do that. Well, just learn enough to have fun with it. Yeah, just we learn could how to plie could... and saute and and like maybe Rochambeau maybe, and all the stuff. Maybe we could do said. a lift. Mm-hmm. I didn't. Yeah, is that a move too? I don't know. So you want you just want me to lift you up is all. Yeah. What if Great. I lifted you up emotionally <laughs> with my support? <laughs> I would take of that. All of I'll, your creative endeavors. You do that regularly. You're a good friend. Yeah, I'm great. All right. Now that we've you, figured that out, what now? Our our listeners are also good friends, so we yeah, should thank them for joining us today, for sure. listening to us talk. You want to do it? I'll do. Thank you, listeners, for being our <laughs> friends and lifting us up. And thank you specifically to the patrons who help make these bonus episodes possible. 
Um, and folks who've joined us in the new year, this this year, 2018, include Rachel, Susan, Allison, Mandy, Karen, Samantha, Amy, Michelle, Mandy, uh, Mary, Katie, Brittany, Jessica, Tammy, and Austin. Thank you all for supporting the show. If you don't know how to do that, you can find out more at patreon.com slash overdue pod. You can also tweet at us or Facebook us at overdue pod or send us an email at overdue pod at gmail.com. Tell us all your ballet stories. Yeah, tell us your ballet stories. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is where we have links to iTunes and RSS and Google Play, all the ways you can subscribe to the show. If you subscribe in iTunes, rate and review us because it makes us feel good. And it's cool when you do that. Um, we also have links to our Patreon project, which Craig just spent a lot of time talking about, so I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Um, HeadGum, our podcast network. Uh, anything else? We have a new listener page, which we keep saying we need to update and we're going to update it. But if you <laughs> are uh, introducing new people to the show, like we saw some people doing on Twitter this week, um, point them to that page because those are episodes that we are especially happy with and, and we think you will enjoy them too. Um, anything else that you can think of? That's it. Thanks That's it. to those of us who joined us for the episode. Thanks to everyone listening again. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Andrew, for lifting me up where we belong. Yep. And that's it. That's the All show. Right. Everybody, we will be back Monday with a regular episode and, what, two months from now with another bonus episode. And That's it. Until we do that for you, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast. If you had to take a part of baseball and make it into an Olympic sport, what part would that be? Because you couldn't just do a game of baseball. Well, there already is a part of baseball that's an Olympic sport, and it's called running really fast. I don't think. Have you seen baseball? That's not a big part of the sport. Some of the dudes run really fast, though. Billy Hamilton is a center fielder for the Cincinnati Reds. He's probably the fastest player in baseball right now. He can run very fast 30 feet at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs>